Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you the story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. It's Saturday, so it's story Saturday. And it's, uh, I didn't do much streaming this week because it's like the last two weeks I've been just scrambling and behind the whole time. But we are doing story Saturday this week. This is another science fiction story. This is story 17 from Stories of the Great Challenge, an awesome huge collection of 52 stories that I wrote over the course of a year, and uh, which you can get on all the ebook and print book platforms that exist as well as directly from my website. Uh, but this is story number 17. It's a science fiction short story and it's called Joyride to the Moon. It's kind of fun, I think. I wrote it. I'm reading it. I'm not a voice actor, but I'm the author. So that makes it cool. Sit back, enjoy, and we'll talk a little more after the story's done. Jeremy frowned and stared daggers at the keypad that had once again filled his attempt to get inside his dad's ride. He hadn't figured it would be this tough. He tried his dad's birthday, his mom's birthday, his sister's. No dice. He'd tried combinations of all four. Nothing. Their wedding date. Nope. It was frustrating as hell. He'd been able to get into his dad's terminal in their house easily enough a few months back so he could bypass the parental controls and the network access to get to the really good stuff. And, boy, was it good. A little disturbing sometimes, too, but good. But it looked like Dad paid more attention to security on his ride than he did for other things. Figured. It was a sweet ride. Jet black and sleek, it was built for both atmospheric and orbital flight. And not just flying, racing. It could get him all the way to Luna and back without a problem, and in time for the Pamela Jennings concert, and all the parties that would go with it, on Mare Tranquillitatis. And with Dad out of town with his girlfriend and Jeremy's sister off to college, there was no one to stop him from taking it, picking up Stephen Emil, and putting in an appearance at the social event of the year. Maybe the decade. Except for the damn lock. Jeremy took a half step back and straightened, right index finger tapping his chin, while he thought the problem through. The sounds of the night surrounded him, chirping insects, the light cool breeze rustling the rigid late autumn leaves on the limbs of the maples and elms that grew around Dad's house. The sound of ground traffic cruising the avenue at the bottom of the hill below their property. He glanced to the right and upwards toward the house, square and dark and suddenly imposing. In a fair second, he forgot he was alone on the property. He had the feeling that Dad might suddenly look out his window and see what Jeremy was doing, then come storming down to stop him. He couldn't stop himself from cringing at the thought of the tongue lashing Dad would dish out and of the probable loss of his surface-driving privileges, because really, that was about all the punishment Dad could really give him anymore. Jeremy was 17, almost ready to graduate and move on. He wouldn't be able to get his flight license for another six months when he turned 18, or his orbital license for another two years after that. But for all intents and purposes, he was a grown-up. It's not like Dad could spank him anymore. Still, loss of surface-driving would suck. But there was no danger of that here. Dad wasn't around, and Jeremy knew how to trick out the house's security, so it looked like he had never left. Not in the air, anyway. That just left getting it done. Jeremy adjusted his faux leather jacket on his shoulders and leaned forward again toward the security keypad. A thought had occurred to him. He tried to push it away, but it wouldn't go. 
So even though he hated thinking of that day, he tried the last significant date in their little family's history. The date they learned Mom had been killed in a car crash. The little LED above the keypad switched from red to green and an electronic beep sounded. Then the smooth black surface of Dad's orbital racer cracked open and the entrance hatch to Jeremy's left rose high, offering admittance. He was in. Jeremy spared one last look at the house above the racer's landing pad. He hesitated for just a second, doubts flashing through his head. Maybe it would be best just to do what he normally did on a Friday night. Drive over in his service car to grab Stephen a meal and just go to the movies. Or something. He almost closed the racer back up and left. But then thoughts of the concert and the party that would surround it returned. The absolute bedlam that everyone predicted up on Luna. The fun. The hotties from all over this quadrant. Ah, screw driving to the movies. He picked up the duffel bag he brought down from the house, containing a couple of changes of skivvies, a fresh shirt and pants, snacks and a water bottle, and a few tools he thought would be helpful for the trip. Then he ducked his head and stepped into the racer. Interior lights flicked to life as the ship sensed his entry, illuminating a crew compartment that was deceptively large for a ship this size. It could seat four comfortably, five if he squeezed, and six if you really knew and liked each other. The pilot and co-pilot's gel-cushioned seats, all covered in worn and cracked black faux leather, were separate units up at the front of the compartment. The passenger's couch, to Jeremy's immediate right as he entered, was one long unit with three built-in sets of four-point restraint harnesses made of black canvas webbing. There were no windows or portals. The only view of anything outside the ship was through the open hatch, for now at least. The lighting was a warm, almost natural hue, and the compartment smelled faintly of pine from Dad's favorite air freshener. Jeremy felt just a little thrill of excitement as he breathed it in. This was going to be awesome. He left his duffel bag on the passenger couch and turned toward the pilot's chair. He had to keep his head ducked as he moved. He had grown to be a couple centimeters taller than Dad, and Dad could just barely stand to his full height inside the ship. But in a short while, he was seated in the chair, the gel cushion adjusting to his weight and body shape automatically to create a snug but comfortable support. Jeremy finished buckling his restraint straps and then reached forward and tapped the two large screens in front of his chair to life with the brushes of his fingers. The upper screen, the larger of the two, ran through a boot-up sequence of codes and symbols, then after a moment settled down into an image of the property in front of the racer. A second later, screens to the left and right of the pilot and co-pilot's chairs sprang to life, showing the view from the port and starboard sides of the ship as well. He didn't look, but he knew a fourth screen mounted on the bulkhead above the passenger couch would show the rear view. The second screen ahead of him, the smaller of the two and mounted below the first, came up with a navigation display overlaid a chart of the city where the ship was shown with a white pip resting on a blue square labeled Home. At the bottom of the navigation display, ship's system status were displayed as a series of circles, all green except for the crew hatch indication which showed red, and engine parameters were shown as digital gauges for power output, acceleration, velocity, and fuel status. Jeremy did a quick look over at the instruments and nodded to himself in satisfaction. Good to go. If any of the systems had issues, they would come yellow or red instead of green. And like usual, Dad had topped off the fuel just before he landed the last time he'd taken the ship out. Okay, Jeremy said to himself, let's get this show on the road. On the overhead, above his head, was a bank of switches and nods that would initiate engine startup. He knew the sequence to get it going. He'd watched Dad do it countless times. And in the last six months, Dad had begun teaching him how to fly the thing in preparation for getting his flight license. He logged about 60 hours of under-instruction time in this seat, with Dad in the right-hand seat beside him, and three hours solo. But he'd never tried to fly out of the atmosphere before. He'd watched Dad do it, he'd read about it, but actually doing it? Doubt again swept through him, and again he shoved it away, and flicked the engine start switches and the switch to close the hatch. 
The hydraulic whine of the hatch actuator sounded quickly. Then came the solid thunk of the hatch closing and the lesser hissing of the inner seal sliding into place. A low rumble, just barely perceptible, came from the aft of the crew compartment as the engine spun up and Jeremy felt a slight vibration in his chair in tune with the rumble. On the system status displays, the engine parameters jumped upward then settled down into idle. Jeremy eyed them for a few seconds. All normal. Good to go. Jeremy grinned and tapped the smaller control pad to his left, and a dialogue window opened up in the upper situational awareness display in front of him. In the right cargo pocket of his pants, his holopad gave a chirp and vibrated for a second as the ship established a link with it. The dialogue window populated with his music playlists, and Jeremy selected a high-energy rocking mix he used when he went to the gym. Thumping bass and a rollicking drum line supported a seriously shredding guitar as Jeremy took hold of the control yoke that was mounted on a panel to the left and in front of his pilot seat and the engine controls on a small console between the pilot and co-pilot seats. He applied vertical thrust and pulled back on the yoke. And he was up. On the situational awareness displays, the trees around the landing pad slipped down and then disappeared from view. Attitude indicators on the navigation display showed him passing through 100 meters, 200, he leveled off at 300 meters, below the altitude where you would have to contact traffic control, and adjusted the thrust vector for forward flight, and he shot off through the night. Acceleration forced him back into the seat, and Jeremy bit back a curse. He'd forgotten the inertial compensators. Releasing the engine controls, he reached up to the control switches above his head and flicked one, and at once the feeling of being kicked in the chest relented, and he was able to more comfortably steer the ship. He turned to the southwest, then switched the dialogue window to his contact list, and placed calls to Steve and Emil. took a few seconds, then Jeremy's music faded as additional dialogue windows opened, showing their faces. Steve all blonde and square-jawed, Emil darker and rounder of face. Neither of them looked particularly excited, though. More doubts rose, but Jeremy forced them down. Hey, I'm up, and on the way to our meeting site. You guys rolling? Both of Jeremy's friends looked like someone had put vinegar in their breakfast cereal. Emil spoke first. Hey, man, my grandma just came to town, unannounced. Mom's pissed she didn't call, but now we have to... He trailed off, and in the windows, he gave a helpless shrug. Damn, that sucked. Not that seeing grandparents was bad, but... Then Steve chimed in. Hey, Katie called a few minutes ago. Her folks are out of town, and she wants me to come over. I mean, the Luna concert sounds cool and all, but... Oh, for the love of... Dude, Katie's been blowing you off for six months. You don't really think she's serious, do you? Don't be hating, because a hottie wants me to all to herself. Sorry, man, but beauty calls. Jeremy pulled back on the throttle, reducing his airspeed to a hover, and leaned back in the pallet chair, dumbfounded. They'd been planning this for weeks. Not going out so they could save money from work, and now when it's finally time to do it, his buddies bail on him? You guys are killing me. What am I supposed to do now? Emil shrugged again. Uh, dunno. Movies, maybe? Better than what I've got to do. Not better than who I'll be doing in a little while, though. Steve's anticipatory grin was practically ear to ear. Really, I'm sorry, Jeremy. I'll make it up to you. Gotta go. Then his transmission winked out, and the dialogue window closed. Yeah, sorry, said Emil. Then he ended the conversation as well. Son of a bitch. Jeremy ground his teeth in frustration. Go to a movie? A movie? The fact that Emil's suggestion mirrored his own hesitant thoughts from a few minutes ago just made it worse. Ah, screw the movies and screw them. He was going to Luna. Snarling to himself, Jeremy advanced the throttle all the way and pulled up on the yoke, raising the ship's nose toward the sky above and space beyond. Luna or bust. Initial exhilaration quickly gave way to routine, and then to boredom. 
Jeremy recalled reading that the first visitors to the moon required four days to get there and back. His trip out was going to be closer to four hours, but after his initial near panic as he dealt with orbital traffic control procedures that he had only observed and read about before, never navigated himself, he had darn little to do. So he reclined his pilot seat and listened to his music. And then he listened some more. After three hours, he truly was ready for something else to happen, just about anything else. By then, Luna had grown quite large in the situational awareness displays, and the little pip showing the racer on the navigation screen was beginning to approach the point where the deceleration burn to enter lunar orbit and then touch down on Mare Tranquillitatis would be necessary. He supposed that was as good as something as he was going to get. He was just situating himself back into a position to properly fly the ship when an electronic beep preceded a hail from lunar traffic control. Jeremy swallowed. He knew LTC existed, of course, but he'd never dealt with them before or even read about their procedures. The various approach and landing procedures were programmed into the ship's navigational computer, so he shouldn't be completely in the dark. But still, this was entirely new territory, and he fought down a big case of nerves as he reached over to the control yoke and pressed the button to activate his pilot's microphone. This is the racer Oliphant, en route to Tranquility Base, he said, then winced. That felt lame. Hopefully it didn't sound lame as well. A second's pause, and then LTC replied. Racer Oliphant, we do not have a flight plan for you on file. Request your registration number and flight plan number. Um, crap? Jeremy hadn't known he would have needed to file a flight plan with LTC. Those weren't typically needed past low Earth orbit, where a majority of the satellite constellation resided. And the plan he had filed with Earth Traffic Control, under Dad's name, had just specified transit through Leo to Luna. Would that be enough? He tabbed open another dialogue window on the situational awareness display this one of the ship's internal records, and pulled up her registration specs. Then he keyed his mic again. LTC, this is Oliphant. Registration number is November 624 Charlie Tango Victor. We filed our plan with ETC. Did they not forward it to you? It was a half-truth, but it was better than a straight-out lie. He sweated for half a minute before LTC replied. Racer Oliphant, you are cleared for lunar entry burn. Execute approach procedure Victor 4 and land at pad 27, Tranquility Base. Jeremy let out a sigh of relief. Maybe this was going to work out after all. Roger, LTC. Thanks. Now, what the hell was Approach Procedure Victor 4? And where was Pad 27? It took him a while to find the procedure. It was buried beneath three levels of directory trees in a seldom-used folder. But when he called it up, it looked simple enough. He was just finishing his review of it when the ship beeped at him, and he heard the deep thrum of the engines lighting off. He looked up to see that they had reached the burn point. On the navigation display, ship's velocity was ticking down rapidly, and over the course of several minutes, their plotted vector went from a straight or near enough line zooming past Luna to who knows where, to a curve that circled Luna to a free return trajectory back to Earth, and then to a stable orbit, and then to a decaying orbit that ended up in a crash landing on Mare Tranquillitatis. Unless he implemented the approach procedure to turn that crash into a nice, soft landing on Pad 27. No pressure. It was a simple enough procedure. He should just be able to enter it into the navigation system, and then a red square with the chilling words, Error, Code 40, appeared in the center of the navigation system when he tried to import the procedure's files. Had he missed a step? He tried again. Error, Code 40. Oh, crap. What was going on here? Jeremy tabbed open the troubleshooting window. He needed to find out what Code 40 meant, and hopefully get it fixed in the next... He glanced at the navigation display in the ETA block, and blanched. In the next 20 minutes... Or he was going to crash. Jeremy paged hurriedly through the troubleshooting documentation and found what he was looking for. His stomach dropped. Code 40. 
Incompatible file type. He shook his head in denial. Incompatible file type? How is that even possible? It was a file resident on the ship's network. How could it be an incompatible file type? He opened up the procedures file to the human readable portion again and scanned it. When he got to the bottom of the first page, he saw the logo there and winced. The logo was for Jeppesen Astronomic Charts. But Jeremy remembered now, a couple years back, his dad had upgraded the Oliphant's navigation system from the old Jeppesen one to a newer unit from Garmin. Naturally, the two companies' file types would not be compatible with each other. And apparently dad had never bothered to get charts and approach procedures for Luna for the new system because he never had any reason to go there. And Jeremy was such an idiot, he hadn't bothered to check before leaving on this trip. So that left contacting LTC, declaring a major mea culpa, aborting his landing and going back to Earth. Or contacting LTC to declare an emergency and have them guide him in with precision approach controls. Or flying the procedure manually. He really, really, really did not want to do the first. He'd come this far and to leave without at least stepping foot on Luna? Jeremy's mind rebelled at that notion. The second option was almost as bad. Because if he declared an emergency and they guided him in, there'd most likely have to be a debrief of events with the local flight standards office, and it would take precisely zero minutes for them to figure out that he wasn't even licensed for atmospheric flight, let alone orbital. That left doing it manually. Jeremy looked at the procedure again. It was simple enough. He'd once done a far more complicated approach in his atmospheric training under Dad's tutelage. He could do this. And hey, he said to himself as he pulled the restraint straps on his seat a bit tighter. Worst case, I just abort and head back to Earth. He tried chuckling to himself, in that confident way that Dad did sometimes. It didn't work. His mouth was dry and his stomach was doing somersaults in his belly. A beep from the navigation system told him there were ten minutes remaining until contact with the lunar surface. Peaks, valleys, and craters on the surface were getting close enough that it was easy to see their depths in detail. And he could see the lit towers of Tranquility Base ahead and closing quickly. The first step of the procedure was due right about now. Eyes flicking quickly between the procedural steps and the navigation display, Jeremy applied a bit of thrust from his maneuvering thrusters to adjust the ship's vector a few degrees to starboard. Next, a quick burn from the engines to steepen their descent. Lower the cameras supplying the situational awareness displays so they were looking down. Find the rat pad, there on the far side of the landing complex. The landing beacons were lit, a series of white directional strobes that were running toward an octagonal plate that was elevated slightly from the terrain surrounding it. If memory served him right, after he touched down, the plate would lower and carry the ship beneath the surface into an air dock, so ingress and egress from the ship would be easier. Also, since there was next to no protection from radiation up on the surface, most of the lunar settlements were subterranean, so it made sense to have the ships go there. A chirping alarm drew Jeremy out of his thoughts of random trivia and back to the present. He looked down at the navigation display and blanched. His descent rate was too high. He gave a quick burst from the engines, and then cursed again as the ship stopped descending entirely and began to rise. Too much thrust. And crap, now he was out of alignment with the pad, and... Racer Oliphant, what is your status? It was a different voice on the communication system. The tower controller, instead of approach control. Jeremy's mind raced, and he keyed back. Misfire from one of our thrusters. I've got it under control now. Good to go, he hoped. He had managed to stop the unexpected ascent, and was yawing the ship around to line up with the markings on the pad. Racer Oliphant, do you require assistance? Damn it, he did not need this distraction. Negative, he said quickly. Everything's under control. And he thought it was. The ship was lined up nicely. The scent rate was good. Just a few meters and... Oh, crap, the landing gear! Jeremy surged forward and hit the switch to deploy the struts. He heard the hydraulics cycle to lower them and then... Bang! Jeremy lurched in his seat and for a second he thought he'd crashed. But when he looked at the ship's status display, everything was green. He was on the ground. 
Hurriedly shutting down the engines, Jeremy slumped back in his seat and adjusted the situational awareness display cameras back to the normal position, just in time to see the ship sink into a vertical steel tunnel and a hatch iris shut overhead. Over the communication system, he heard the tower say, Welcome to Luna. Jeremy breathed out a sigh of relief. He waited a few minutes to give himself time to calm down before opening the hatch and leaving the ship. When he stepped out, he found himself on a steel platform that was big enough to accept the ship three times the size of Oliphant. The steel tunnel stretched above him a good thirty meters before stopping at the massive irising hatch that had been closing above them. The place was well lit by recessed LEDs in the tunnel walls, and a couple of spotlights shone down on the ship from the lower side of the hatch overhead. Ground crew was hard at work securing the landing gear to the platform and rigging up umbilicals for shore power and sanitary tank draining. The crew's foreman turned toward Jeremy when he stepped out and gave him a quizzical look. That was about the most jacked up landing I've ever seen, he said. He was an older man, in his sixties probably, with dark brown skin and deep smile lines on his face. His hair was frizzy, white, and receding, and he wore the same gray coveralls that his team wore. Yeah, Jeremy said, I almost lost it there. He moved a step toward the foreman and stumbled into low gravity. Inside the ship, the inertial systems had maintained Earth normal, but here the gravity was one-sixth that, and he had never experienced it before. The first step out of the ship had been weird. The second, he tried to catch himself, but his reflexes were not attuned to the environment, and he found himself launching up into the air. He cried out in alarm. And then strong hands were grabbing him. He turned to see the foreman had bounced over in one step, grabbed him, and pulled him back down into a normal standing position. The foreman looked at him quizzically. First time on Luna, huh? Jeremy nodded. How old are you, boy? Jeremy had been expecting this question and had come prepared. Twenty-one, he said, and reached into his cargo pocket. He pulled out the fake ID he'd gotten a few months back. It was in Dad's name, but it had his picture and vitals on it. Just his birthday was four years earlier than reality. He showed it to the foreman and he looked it over and frowned. He grunted. Twenty-one, huh? Well, you look about fifteen. He grinned then. In about twenty years, you'll be happy with that baby face, believe me. Now, take it easy moving around at first. Take some getting used to. I presume you're here for the concert? Jeremy nodded. Hope you got a place to stay lined up already. Way I hear the hotels are booked. I figured I'd sleep on the ship, save some money that way. The foreman grunted again. Your call, I guess. When are you leaving? Sunday morning. The foreman nodded. All right then, well, have fun. Jeremy grinned in return. He was going to. Oh boy, was he going to. Jeremy couldn't help but smile probably the broadest smile he'd ever had, as he pressed the engine start switches and powered up the Oliphant, then blasted off from Tranquility Base. It was Sunday morning and he hadn't gotten any sleep the previous night. Part of the reason was the concert, another part were the parties after the concert, and the final part was in a dialogue window on the situational awareness display. Her name was Samantha. She was 20, she was a redhead, and she had made his life incredibly interesting the last few hours before he had to leave if he was to get home before Dad did. Eat your heart out, Steve, Jeremy said, and sounded smug, even to himself. Whatever, he'd earned it. As he lifted off, he found he could not look away from the image of Samantha's face in that dialogue window. Those green eyes, the cute dimples in her cheeks. Best part was, she didn't live all that far away from him. He was definitely going to have to look her up again. And how exactly are you going to explain that you're not really 21 and the ship you showed her around really was your dad's? Asked the annoying voice in the back of his head. Shut up, he said to it but it kept on babbling at him. Didn't take his great cheer away, though. He'd figure something out. Speaking of which, he glanced down at the navigation display and saw that he was, Racer Oliphant, you are approaching the limits of the departure corridor. Adjust your vector, came the voice of LTC over the communication system. 
Jeremy cursed to himself and applied some lateral thrust. LTC Oliphant, roger that. Little glitch in the system, we're good now. He resolutely closed the window with Samantha's picture on it. Time enough to daydream about her, later. Carefully tweaking the racer's vector, he eased the ship back into the center of the departure corridor. And then, just a few minutes later, LTC was bidding him farewell and he was on trajectory back to Earth. Easy peasy. He got back to Earth without anything happening to stop his remembrances of Samantha, and before he knew it, he was passing through a re-entry interface and flying on a vector for home. The sun was still well up in the sky when he sat down on the landing pad below the house, and he took a few minutes to secure the ship, making sure to leave no trace of his presence or of the adventure he had had. When Dad came walking in through the front door, a suitcase in each hand, Jeremy was sprawled on the couch, watching a hollow of a kung fu shoot 'em up almost comedy movie from 20-something years ago, one that he knew Dad loved. Dad stopped when he saw the movie and grinned. Big trouble in old Taipei, he said. Now that is a classic. He turned to the stairs leading up to their bedrooms. They didn't know you liked it. It's kind of fun, Jeremy said. It wasn't entirely untrue. The movie was cheesy, that's for sure, but there was something about the cheese that made it almost good. Damn right it is. Dad headed upstairs. He came down a couple minutes later, sans jacket and suitcases, and walked past where Jeremy was sitting on the couch toward the kitchen. How was the trip, Dad? Pretty great. Kind of glad I didn't take the Oliphant down there, though. I was in no condition to fly this morning. He opened up the refrigerator and pulled out a box of orange juice, then found a cup and poured himself a drink. Got a funny call from Mrs. Kranitz, though. Jeremy felt his eyebrows rising. Mrs. Kranitz was the neighbor two houses over on the other side of the hill. She was always poking her nose where it didn't belong. What does she want? Dad replaced the orange juice box in the refrigerator and closed it, then took a draw from his cup. Weirdest thing, he said, after swallowing. She said she saw the Oliphant lift off from here Friday evening and land again this afternoon. Jeremy worked hard to keep his face straight, though the bottom dropped out of his stomach. Oh? Yep. Dad shook his head. Funny old bird. I told her she had to be mistaken. You've been here all weekend, and no way could someone just take the ship without you noticing and calling the cops. Yeah. Jeremy sounded breathless even to himself. Dad's eyes locked onto his and grew stern despite the easy expression on his face. I thought about checking the ship's position log to be sure. Position log? Yeah, Oliphant updates its position hourly to a site I have access to, so I can check on it from afar if I need to. I can run system diagnostics, check its position, look at exterior and interior camera feeds, you name it. Even get the engines warmed up so I can take off in a hurry. Dad's eyebrows rose. You didn't know that? Jeremy shook his head. He knew his mouth had dropped open, and he could feel his cheeks warming as he thought of bringing Samantha onto the ship. And the things he'd done with her while she was there, if Dad saw... Dad shrugged. But I decided I didn't need to do that. I left you in charge, and you're a dependable, responsible young man. I'm sure nothing untoward happened at all. He drained the rest of his cup and set it down on the counter. But I'll tell you what. If someone had run off with my ship when I was away, I would hope they'd at least have the decency to leave it with a full fuel tank. He patted his belly and looked around the kitchen for a moment, as though trying to decide whether to get something else or not. Finally, he shrugged and turned back to Jeremy. Well, I'm pretty beat. I'm heading to bed. Good night, son. As Dad walked past him, it was all Jeremy could do to manage the hoarse sounding, Good night. Dad went back upstairs, and a few seconds later, Jeremy heard the door to his bedroom close. Jeremy waited until the movie was done, and he was sure Dad was asleep. Then he rushed out the door, down the hill, and to the landing pad where the Oliphant was parked. He had to get to a gas station. Now. Okay, so there's the story. Fun little sci-fi tale, just a <laughs> teenage joy ride to the moon. Why not, right? Every now and then you just gotta have fun. 
Gotta have fun all the time. It's like I tell everybody when I'm driving them around. It's impossible not to have fun when you don't have a boss. There you go. Uh, so, yeah. See, I hope you liked that one. I enjoyed uh, writing it. I want to say, if I don't remember if it got an honorable mention or silver honorable from Writers of the Future. Uh, I bet it got some little bit of recognition from that writing contest, which is nice. Um, and now it's available for your enjoyment everywhere. Uh, let's see. So what what else has been going on in the Kingswood abode? Like I said, this last week, last two weeks, it's just been like, felt like a scramble to get even the most mundane things accomplished, like making the big driving or getting the writing done or getting this done or getting this. I've been really bad at uh, getting stuff done, playing catch up. But I think I've gotten things back to, you know, even keel again. So this next weekend moving forward will be a lot more combobulated, I think. Um, very, very close to finally finishing up campaign season for the Kickstarter guys, uh, which is nice since I, you know, owe it to them and I said I'd get it to them a couple few weeks ago. Um, so that'll be good to finish that up. And then uh, we'll be going on to the next book we're writing and starting another new cha- new great challenge here uh, in June as soon as I get, once campaign season is fully squared away, I'm going to start on that. Um, that's, uh, that's where we are on various writing projects. The fun things that have happened is uh, last Friday I went up to L.A. and Saw the Nightwish concert, which was great. Um, they had a really cool band who I hadn't met before called Beast in Black opening for them. I'm like, it's, but, uh, it was a great time all around. I got some things to say about it. I meant to say it at the streams this week, but I haven't streamed any. So I'll probably do that and talk about it a little more next week uh, during streaming time. And I'll go from there. Uh, so I think I'm just going to cut this one short. Um, I do have some things to do this afternoon. Just it's uh, two o'clock to twenty p.m. Pacific time as I'm writing, as I'm recording this. Uh, Want to get some writing done. Got to do some dad stuff. Got to do some driving. Uh, so I'm just gonna leave it off here, and we'll talk more during streaming times during the week. In the meantime, come back next week. Next week's story Saturday also comes from stories from the Great Challenge. This is ooh Moonstruck is the story name. It's kind of like a fantasy romance horror thing. It's kind of funky, but I like it, and you will too. Come back next Saturday, you can hear that story. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed this story and you enjoy what we're doing on, doing what you if if you enjoyed this week's story, and if you enjoy what we're doing here on the the podcast and the videos, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you tell all your friends about it. Make sure you go by michaelkingswood.com slash store to buy Stories from the Great Challenge or any of my other books that you want. There are many of them. You can get them in any format that are all the formats that are available through directly from the site. You can go to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Kobo and Apple Books and Audible and all the other places out there, all the cool retailers. Love them all. I'm on all of them. Better to come straight to me. I get more money that way. We have more of a direct relationship that way. And you don't have the middleman who might sometimes act capriciously. I know it's shocking to think that a tech company might do something that was less than cool, but eh, you know, 
You can also go to michaelkingswood.com uh, slash newsletter sign up. Sign up for my newsletter. You can become a member of the site. Throw like a couple bucks a month this way to help just keep the lights on and help with cash flow, show your appreciation. We give we get discounts and special goodies to members um, as as we do things, and that's a cool thing to do. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, tell everybody what we're doing here. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you come back. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. For information on my books, visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyrighted Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.